Um, if you want to, to turn with me uh, in your pew Bibles, um, we're in Mark chapter 2. Um, we're going to be starting today at verse 23. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. You'll find that on page 1004 uh, of the Bibles in the pews there. Mark chapter 2, um, we're starting at verse 23, and we're going to read through to chapter 3, verse 6. This is God's word. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is unlawful, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Amen. I have to say, when I first read this section of Mark, um, that I was asked to look at today. I thought, well, okay, it's interesting. There's a, a bit of a theological dispute going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees about some of the, the deep intricacies of Sabbath law. But is there really that much there for us to take and apply to our lives? You might be thinking the same thing as we've read it here this morning. What is this quite random, weird dispute about Jewish holy days, cornfields, and withered hands have to do with anything? Well, although the topic is the Sabbath, and the argument is around different interpretations of certain laws, that's not really what all this is about. Actually, what's going on here is a dispute about how we relate to God. The religion of the Pharisees had a, had a messed up view of how we relate to God. And it led them to act completely against the God that they supposedly followed. Jesus, on the other hand, was revealing to people what true religion looks like. A religion of gospel, of good news, of grace. A religion that gives life rather than diminishes it. And in this passage, he uses the topic of Sabbath to demonstrate it. So we're going to spend a bit of time in this passage this morning, thinking about whether Jesus and the disciples do really break the law, and what does that mean for us? 
then what does this claim that, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath actually mean? And finally, we'll consider the, the two religions that are set before us here. The religion of, of misapplied law and the religion of gospel. To see how very often we as Christians can so easily end up thinking more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. So do Jesus and his disciples break the law as the Pharisees claim? Well, let's look at that, that incident in the cornfield. In Deuteronomy 23:25, it says, If you enter your neighbor's cornfield, you may pick the ears with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing corn. This was a law designed to help travelers and the poor in society. It also encouraged a, a culture where people didn't hold on selfishly to their own possessions, but were commanded to, to share the odd ear of corn or bunch of grapes with passers-by. However, those passers-by weren't allowed to take advantage of this by harvesting other people's fields or harvesting other people's vineyards. So by definition, this law as set out in Deuteronomy was not about harvesting. It wasn't considered harvesting. But this group of Pharisees, they were looking at Exodus 34, verse 21, which says, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. The Pharisees' complaint was that it was the Sabbath. And in their eyes, the disciples could be said to be harvesting or working, which was unlawful. And this demonstrates a, a major difference between the religion of the Pharisees and the true religion of Christ. You see, although many of the Pharisees at this point in Israel's history had become corrupt, power-hungry, and legalistic, that wasn't always the case. When the, when the Pharisees set themselves up, they, they had a serious concern that the law was too difficult for anyone to be able to keep. And so this strict group of Jews added a whole heap of additional laws to try and keep people as far away from breaking the law as possible. I'm sure some of you over Christmas gave or received gifts that were fragile. Cups, glasses, plates, ornaments, even new technology. Things that you or the person giving the gift were scared of getting broken. And so to protect them, what do you do? You wrap them in bubble wrap, right? Which is, of course, the best Christmas present that you can receive. I love it. It's brilliant. Just sit popping it for days. Um, actually got bubble wrap this year. It was awful. Got this bubble wrap this year that has like open pockets. So when you squeeze one, it just goes into the next one. It's better bubble wrap. It protects things, but no use for me. But the big, the, that is a problem with bubble wrap. But the biggest problem with bubble wrap is that when you take, take your, you get there on Christmas morning, you take your wrapping paper off, you rip it to pieces. Oh, it's a load of bubble wrap. You still can't see what your gift is. It's totally obscured by all of this other stuff, all of this bubble wrap. It's not until you remove that bubble wrap that you can see what it really is and make proper use of it. You see, the Pharisees, they were so fearful of people breaking the law that they tried to wrap it in bubble wrap. Lots of other smaller laws that go around it that would stop people even getting close to breaking the actual law. But the problem was the same. 
the meaning and purpose of the actual law became so obscured by the other stuff, all this man-made tradition, that the whole thing became a complete mess. And here we end up seeing the Pharisees and trying to avoid the breaking of the Sabbath by others, actually falsely accusing the disciples and therefore breaking the ninth commandment themselves. And the whole approach of the Pharisees was messed up. They were motivated not by love for God and love for others, the two things that sum up the whole of the law, but they were instead motivated by fear. Fear of breaking the law. Fear that their works and other people's works would not be good enough to please God. And to be fair, they were right. Their works, our works, will never be good enough to stand before God on our own merit. The problem was because of their focus on the letter of the law, they had completely missed the grace of the law and the grace of the, whole, the Old Testament as a whole. That Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. That Jacob was chosen over Esau by God's choice, not by any good thing that Jacob did. That God rescues the people from, from Egypt by his grace and then after they're saved, gives them the law to show them how to live, not to re-enslave them. And he continued to show his grace over the centuries in the face of disobedience to the law, judgment, desiring people to instead return to true worship and the life that the law offers. And all the while promising one who would come and deal fully with the requirements of that law and be that final full sacrifice. One who would finally make those who put their faith in him truly clean and righteous before God our Father. But in the 200 odd years that the Pharisees had been about, this, this fear of breaking the law had in many of them turned to legalism, an outward status, a way of seeming better than other people, holding power and privilege over, the, over them. And these particular Pharisees, we see, didn't really care about the law at all. They cared about the growing crowd that were following Jesus, and they wanted to stop it. We see this in chapter 3, verse 6, where after, the, after Jesus has further embarrassed them, the Pharisees, this apparently religious group, trying desperately to keep Roman and Greek influence out of the religious life of Israel, join with a political group totally allied with Rome to seek to kill Jesus. Again, not just breaking their own rules, but in several major ways, breaking the whole of the law of God in order to stop someone who hadn't actually broken any laws. I'm sure many of you have spent the last few days indulging in, in all sorts of of little festive traditions. Which Christmas movies you watch, what you eat, games you play, the houses you go around and visit, how you exchange your gifts. Many of us love structure. We love tradition. We love doing things a certain way. And generally, that's, it's all good. It helps us to be organized. It helps us to be effective. It helps us to do things well. It gives us a sense of nostalgia and continuity in a world that where so much is, is chaotic. But sometimes our traditions, which start out well, 
can end up becoming burdens. And this is especially true when it comes to church or faith. We can so easily become set in our ways. Things that were begun to help fulfill our call to make and grow disciples over many years can become burdens that end up being a block to the gospel rather than a help to it. We need to be careful not to end up like the Pharisees, whose man-made traditions, although originally started to help people keep the law and follow God better, ended up as a chain around people's necks, dragging them down, rather than helping them to live in the real life that the law was designed to give. We need to reflect on how we do church, how we do our organizations, even our own spiritual lives, and ask, is this the best way to do this? Is this the way that helps us to best fulfill the call God has given to us? And there are lots of things that are, that are biblically non-negotiable when it comes to church. A focus on God's word, biblical preaching, prayer, singing, the sacraments, being in, in fellowship and community with God's people, and, and lots of other commanded things, which some churches are, are increasingly quick to diminish or remove to try and get people in through the door. And it works. You get people, but you don't get disciples. But there's lots of other things that, that aren't commanded in the Bible that we need to be constantly looking at and asking ourselves, is this tradition, is this way of doing this still helpful? Or has it lost its purpose and become a hindrance to the gospel? I think once the answer to the question, why do you do that, is, oh, we've just always done it that way. It's probably time to have another think about it. I know this is something the leadership of this church takes very seriously and looks at regularly, which is great. But even in our own lives, are you in a rut in your prayer life or your Bible reading? Have the habits that you set up long ago to help you lost all their meaning? Is it just a box-ticking exercise? Do you come to church prepared to worship God, ready? Or do you come because of habit and tradition? You don't even really think about it till you're in through the door. What about a day of rest? Is Sunday the day you do church, but otherwise it's just like any other day? Maybe the new year is a good time to reassess some of what we do as disciples, to think about our own habits, our own traditions, and whether we are still seeking to honor God with our whole hearts or has he got a bit lost along the way, like the Pharisees? Let's have a look at Jesus' response to these guys. Lots of people have claimed here that we see Jesus overthrowing the Sabbath. They're saying that it, it no longer applies to him and his followers. It's rubbish. Jesus is not against the law, and he's not against a day of rest. In Matthew 5:17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is, is trying to correct an abuse here, the abuse of the Sabbath, that it has become, become this burden thanks to all these additional rules, where the Pharisees were essentially trying to enforce and control people's rest. They were turning rest into hard work. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
a day of rest. It's there for our benefit, not as a worry or something for us to, to threat over. Should we be doing this? Shouldn't we be doing this? That's not how God's law is meant to work. It's meant to show us the way of life. And remember, a day of rest appears in the Bible long before the law. It's part of the whole creation order. God, who, who doesn't require rest, rests on the seventh day from his work. He didn't need to rest, but it's a sign and a symbol to us that a healthy way for us as his created beings on this planet to live is to follow the pattern that God has set for us. To work hard, but also to ensure that we rest well and rest in him. The word Sabbath has a very similar meaning to the word shalom, which lots of you will know means this sort of deep sense of peace and rest. It's all about wholeness and fullness. It's about recovery and healing and restoration. It's not a chore. It's not something that should cause us harm or worry. I remember, uh, I remember growing up not being allowed out on the street on my bike on a Sunday. Lots of you have stories like that. I kept being told that I had to go and play out in the back garden because apparently it wasn't Sunday in the back garden. And I kept being told off for being too loud because, you know, you can't have people hearing that you have fun on a Sunday. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's there so we, like God, can sit back, look at our work, the world that he has made for us, and say, it is good. To be filled with joy. To do things that give us peace and rest and restoration. To have time. Time to enjoy a holy day, a special day, where we can spend time with God. And if possible, if it's a Sunday, which for some of us it can't always be, we should be with God's people as a family, resting together in him, receiving the healing and encouragement and restoration that he gives. And always remembering that this rest that we are commanded to have once a week is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This rest that we are called to is a, a weekly reminder of the true, deep, everlasting rest that can only be found in Christ. Christ came to take the burden and punishment of our sin to give us peace and rest and wholeness again. He demonstrates this in chapter 3 when he, he heals the man's shriveled hand. He's again accused of, of doing work on the Sabbath. But what he's actually doing is demonstrating what he and the Sabbath are all about. They're about doing good, restoring and renewing what is broken and defective and tired and withered. That's what Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the living Sabbath, offers to us. We can take off all the days we want. We can go on all the holidays in the world. But if we don't have that deep rest of our souls, resting in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we will never find true rest and joy. 
On the cross, Jesus was separated from his fullness, from his rest in the Father, so that we who put our faith in him can have that, that deep rest of knowing we are loved, we are accepted, and our sins are forgiven. Wonder do you take seriously a day of rest once a week? And do you take seriously the Savior that it points to? As I said earlier, this isn't really a dispute about the Sabbath. It's a dispute about how we relate to God. The Pharisees believe that by following God's rules and their own made-up extra rules, they could be good enough to stand before God. It was belief plus obedience that led to them being justified. And it led to them becoming self-righteous as it always does with people who think that way. Because to think that, that way, you have to actually believe somewhere deep down inside of you that you can somehow be good enough to make it to a holy and perfectly righteous God. You have to have an incredibly high opinion of yourself. But many of us, even those of us who know our salvation can't be dependent on our goodness, still at times tend to think this way. We think that our obedience, our good works, make some sort of difference to God's opinion of us. That it somehow balances the scales a little bit more. We think of God like he's Santa Claus. He sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows when we've been bad or good. So you better be good for goodness sake. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. That's a really creepy song, isn't it? When you think about it. But that's how we think about God. This idea of God, it often fills our minds that we need to perform for him so that he'll accept us. It was this fearfulness that took the Pharisees down this path. And where did it lead? To a group who were judgmental, loveless, gossips, with a skewed idea of God and his law. It led them to hate, to falsely accuse, to even plot murder and betray everything they claimed to believe in. That's where Christless, do-it-yourself Christianity will lead you. It leads to death instead of life, to being judgmental, self-righteous, looking down on others and often missing or even being opposed to what God might be doing in your life or in his church. And it's a danger for all of us. Christ here reminds us by using the, the Sabbath as an example that the law is there to show those who are in him who have already been accepted how to live. The Bible constantly tells us that it's all about faith, belief in Christ and all he has done for us through his life, death and resurrection that makes the difference. If we put our faith and trust in the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who offers us deep, eternal joy, rest, and peace with the Father, then we, who, we are saved. We are justified before God by Christ's righteousness, by his ability to keep the law. 
And that's done. It can't be lost. If we trust in Christ, we are saved. And that should lead us to obedience, to living out the life-giving law of God, not to stay saved or to add to our salvation, but in gratitude. In gratitude to the one who has already and eternally rescued us. I don't think it massively goes against the teaching of the whole of Scripture to, to expand chapter 2, verse 28 out a wee bit and say that, that Jesus, by saying this about the Sabbath, is really saying the law was made for man, not man for the law. The law, it does show us that we're condemned because we can't possibly fully keep it. But thankfully, we're not judged by the law. We are judged by what we choose to do with Jesus. Do we put our faith in him as the fulfiller of the law? The one who has made a way for us to enter into this deep, eternal rest, peace, wholeness, renewal of God's eternal kingdom? Do we keep our relationship with Jesus central? Or do we allow habits and traditions to take over and lead us away from true relationship with the one who gives us life and joy and rest? Do we take seriously the command to have a day of rest? Do we see that as a burden? Or do we see it as the life-giving, life-renewing practice that Jesus shows us here? And do we use that day not just to rest physically and mentally, but to rest in him, the one who has saved us and has brought us into his family? On the surface, this seems like a strange story about wheat and withered hands and Jewish holy days. But actually, Mark is, is once again showing us who this Jesus is and the incredible life and riches that come from being in relationship with him. Let's pray.